This episode is powered by Safety FM. Welcome to the Safety Consultant Podcast. I'm your host, Sheldon Primus. This is the podcast where I teach you the business of being a safety consultant. This week is another episode going to a road to 100. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Linda Martin, the Lorax. Linda Martin is one of these people that I've just recently met through the Safety FM family. But it feels like I needed her in my life years ago. And I probably did. She has been really good to uh, get to know, and it's been fun. We had an episode earlier this year, and actually not too long ago, but when I was deciding people that I really wanted to be part of my 100th episode, Linda was on that short list, and I'm so glad that she accepted and was going to be on this. Uh, Before we get to the podcast, I want to remind you guys to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. And it'd be really, really good if you could go ahead and do whatever uh, rating you want to give me. It's up to you. Five star would be awesome, but, you know, I don't want to lead the witness here. However you feel like you want to do that, that's great for me. I just really need the ratings because what I'll do is it will bump me up in the rankings so that more people will be able to see that I have a show out there to help people that are going to be safety consultants or in the safety realm as well as entrepreneurs, because that's really what we are, safety consultants. So if you could do that for me, that'd be really great. If you're feeling a little extra cheeky, now that cheeky, <laughs> it's a funny word. Anyway, if you're feeling a little bit extra that you want to do some work, go ahead and drop me a comment too. That'd be awesome to hear what you think about the show. People have been sending me stuff on Sheldon at SheldonPrimus.com, and they've also been sending some information to me via LinkedIn. So go ahead and leave that comment for me. All right. So for this episode, Linda and I get right into it. And we really just start talking about a few things. First, about her crazy, insane, just amount of work that she's doing. And she's one of these doctors that uh, is an advisor. And it comes to me that, man, she's an executive coach. That's really what it boils down to. So we talked a little bit about what she's doing now, what she's learning, and then also a few ways that she coaches those that want to become doctors. And then we also talk a lot about uh, safety in itself and what we're seeing more as people who they don't really branch out to have an academic mind towards safety and health. And that could be a little bothersome and also it could be misleading at times. And we talked a little bit about that and we just talked about a little bit of everything, quite honestly, that's what we do. And we get on the phone together, me and Linda. I just love me some Lorax. She's really cool. You guys are going to have a kick uh, listening to her. And if you want to also listen to her episode, scroll down from the feed, wherever you got me, listen to this episode and then listen to our one-on-one on our previous interview. So after me and Linda get done, you're going to hear the music to let you out. And then we're just going to end the episode at that time. So I'm going to tell you what I always tell you each week, what I tell you to be encouraged by, and that's go get them. 
What have you been up to lately? I see you everywhere. What do you What have you been up to that you can share with the audience? As far as from the last time that we we had our episode, and I believe that was in October, if I'm recalling right, I'll have to uh, check real quick. So a couple of months of you know pandemic and chaos. And- <laughs> election all that stuff but <laughs> what, what about I, remember, I actually don't remember what we talked about but uh, yeah let's see what have i been up to i have um 24 dissertation students i don't know if you saw me post that on um linkedin but um, i've been working a lot with dissertation students doing research which i find to be fascinating because my, my students are all over the world and um, they're doing all kinds of different stuff. So while my PhD and my dissertation was in mindfulness, mm-hmm. um, we're working on psychological safety, we're working on multicultural uh, workforces, we're doing some research on uh, pilot fatigue, um, we're doing work, work on military fatigue, wow. uh, which which is a really interesting thing. You wouldn't think that COVID, um, you know, COVID's affected everything and it's even affected the military. I have one student that's a, a drill instructor mm-hmm. and his units have to quarantine when they come in for their training. But also when drill instructors cycle out, they have to quarantine when they come back in and so it's putting extra um, stress on the people that are left to, to train and so they're doing extra hours and extra shifts and etc so um, you know COVID's upset everything yeah absolutely and so I've got a couple of students working in that COVID realm and so I've, I mean I've basic, basically been working on that I've been working on the podcast as, as you have seen through yeah. um, LinkedIn and other sources uh, trying to get my voice out there and trying to change the paradigm, right? How, like, if you're going to say your your time for dissertations, and because you now have to, and my brother's done this. He's he's a, a doctor in in, in uh, sociology, I believe, and so he has. He went through it years and years and years where he had someone who, you know, he had to report to someone in your position when he was doing his dissertation and the research he had to do. And I'm thinking you have to probably match that intensity, but for 27 students? 24. 24 right now, but it'll be more in the spring, I think, uh, depending on how many I'm assigned. But, um, you know, I consider what I do with PhD students more coaching than anything. And um, traditionally, um, you choose a chair, right? After you do your comprehensive exams and your courses. Whereas when you come into Capital Tech, it's a European model. So you're just researching basically until you're done, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they're assigned to me. And we, I walk these people through the process of, you know, do you have an idea for a topic? Mm-hmm. If you do, how do you narrow it? How do you do the research that helps you know what's been done before and what is incrementally better yeah. than uh, what's out there in the body of body of research already? And then, you know, I meet weekly with some people. I meet bi-weekly, bi-weekly with other people. And we talk through where they're at and what my thoughts are 
about how to move forward. Huh. And, you know, I would say um, at Capital Tech, the research process is, you know, for a, a really uh, ambitious student is three years, right? Huh. For other students, it's longer. And it, and it just depends on the student, right? I have I have a student that that never wants to talk to me. They just they just want to research, and they do do a great job with it. And we meet once a month. Um, but I have other students that um, need a lot of coaching, and that's fine too. That's just that's just who they are, right? So you're um, an executive coach. Kind of, yeah. It's it's kind of weird that way, um, although. Um, I'm learning in the process about other areas of safety that um, maybe aren't my uh, expertise areas, I would say. Um, but I, you know, I, I read a lot of literature and research in those areas in order to augment what I'm, what I'm doing. And I, I think coaches do that too, right? I mean, they look at where you're at and what you're doing and what you're into and then try to advise you what the next steps are. Um, it seems like you're doing, um, like to me, it seems like it's it's a, a different version of troubleshooting, but with people. So in this case, in, instead of, uh, you know, situations or, or machinery or something else, so the person is telling you uh, um, a mystery to them, you have to understand the, the missing piece, whatever it is, then now you go in... Uh, basically you know look at each variable and then try to see how to how to take out the variables that are are nonsense and then put in you know <laughs> the pieces that this is what you really want <laughs> or this is yeah yeah think. yes in, in a way that's that's kind of what I'm doing I mean I feel um, the way I described it to, to one student was you know um, I'm the litmus for when you get to the end, because at the end you have to defend this body of research. And so right? in a group, like what, three or four people. Yeah. And they're asking you questions on your statistics and they're asking you questions on, you know, why you did, why you picked a topic and why is this different than what already exists? And they're asking you all these questions. And so, um, I'm that person that during the three years is putting up, the guardrails, right? And the bumpers. You can guardra guardrails or bumpers, whichever you want, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Because what happens is when you research, you tend to kind of throw out all these tentacles in areas. And what you want to do for the four people, four or five people that are going to be asking you those questions is put up discrete guardrails so that they can't go outside the guardrails right that the questions are already answered and the and those branches of the tree are truncated so that it leads them to the point that you're trying to make you're leading the witness uh, I, in a way right in a way so it, it's really easy in in academia and research to go down the wormhole right and the point of a dissertation is to show um additional um in addition to the body of knowledge mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. And so, whereas you don't want to go down the wormhole, you also don't want your dissertation committee to start asking questions outside of what your point is, which, you know, at the end of your de defense, you should have made that point. And um, 
where questions are welcome are in how you got to that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. Because I, I saw my brother going through the process. So when he had to, uh, his final dissertation was basically, he, we're from a, a Afro-Caribbean community. Uh, we're born and raised in Guyana. Well, I was, really, I was born in, in America, but I became a Guyanese citizen later on. But uh, he was just truly looking at how the family structure is with religion, uh, with expectations and everything in the Caribbean mindset and had to uh, defend, you know, all the other different uh, stimulus, uh, everything else that would have also affected that child. How is this different than a Caribbean versus, you know, someone from a Nordic nation or someone who dealt? So he, he had to really try to, you know, figure out okay well from the caribbean mindset you're coming and he had to go all the way back to like slavery and he had to, mm -hmm. you know he really had to start thinking of what created this and then he had to define a culture and then from there he, he really had to you know go into how now the descendants of these people how we feel some of the some of the distant oppression, but then also a few other things that's a driving factor. So that's why in some cases you see someone in the Caribbean doing like six or seven jobs, you know, and they're still feeling like they're lazy. <laughs> right, right. I must be from the Caribbean then. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm lazy all the time. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of brought up, I have a, a student in Dominica mm -hmm. and uh, she's looking at safety management systems from their government uh, regulatory uh, framework. And uh, it, it's really interesting, you know, what you just described about your brother is that you, she has to um, describe everything that's leading up to what their structure is on Dominica, on, a, on an island, um, and how safety management systems or, or a regulatory structure for a safety management system can be put in place that their um, that fits their culture and that also fits the type of businesses on the island. So, um, I mean, again, that that's something that I never would have thought I would be helping the research. Yeah. And there it is, right? So great for you because that makes you so... It, 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 it like keeps depositing into your knowledge base. And then also from that, uh, I can imagine with your personality, you know, true, you're saying it lights you up and getting that knowledge base, but then you might also be inspired to do something else. So that leads me to think, are you creating a book or a course or anything <laughs> else because of, of all these deposits that you're getting from all your, your students? Well, I'm, I'm not, maybe I'll create a book on, on how to coach a dissertation student. And I've, I've thought about doing some live streams on uh, how to kind of coach people through dissertations or coach yourself through a dissertation. Mm. Because there are a lot of traditional um, PhD programs where the students don't get a lot of help on how to research or how to narrow or how to, and so I thought... I mean, I give a lot of knowledge away for free just because I think we shouldn't we shouldn't hoard our knowledge. We should we should actually share it. Mm -hmm. What a concept, right? Oh, yeah. And so, um, if you've seen some of my live streams lately on on LinkedIn, I've been talking about where you get stuff for free, right? Yeah. And and that may not be good for the safety consultants and a or, good helping of needs and 
a few other things that you've been talking about lately. <laughs> I watch you. <laughs> right. And, um, but writing a book, I mean, I've got uh, four books in the works with Wiley Publishing right now. And so I've got to get those done by next year. So I, there won't, there won't be any book on dissertations yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything like that until after the Wiley books are done. Yeah, I remember um, I was an un under contract with Elsevier Publishing once to write a wastewater math book, and um, <laughs> it was so taxing. Uh, and I still have never finished that book. I actually, oh, no. you know, that's like <laughs> one of the things I, I had to let go. So it was early in my career, and I was trying to do too much. And I talked to the publisher, and and I'm like, hold on, you got the science direct people, Elsevier people, contacting you to write, and here you are letting this thing go. And yeah. I had a lot of guilt about that because truly I felt like I let this publisher down who, you know, he found me and asked me to write a, a textbook. So, you know, it wasn't, it was truly academic. <laughs> yeah. I, I had 300 pages ready and I gave it to him. I said, here's my 300 pages. I just can't get to the bottom of this. And yeah. uh, and they have part of my, my work already. Uh, but I, I really know what it's like when you're on that, that that constraint of publishers, especially for academia. So, so I actually on on the four projects I have three uh, co-writers mm -hmm. on three of the books, so that helps. Good. And um, one of them I'm writing myself uh, on cybersecurity and construction, and that's kind of more of a smaller book, so I think I can handle that myself. So the cybersecurity one, cybersecurity and construction and critical critical infrastructure. Um, that's going to be a, a shorter book. It's going to be more like a, you know, like a paperback. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other are going to be pretty big textbooks. So, um, I, I said I must be Caribbean in descent because yeah. you like to do eight or nine jobs. Absolutely. And that's a hundred percent me. It's like <laughs> I feel like um, I did learn to say no to things for a while. What? Yeah. Um, you learned to say no. How did I learn to say no? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I <laughs> through personal trial and tribulation. And um, I think when your home life starts to suffer and your marriage starts to suffer, it's, um, it's very easy to start putting things in perspective. And I think also the pandemic put things in perspective to me and I've slowed down a lot you wouldn't think I have yeah. um, but I do say no to things that take a lot of time I say no to things that cut into the evening time uh, with my family um, so I think a personal reckoning has made me slow down um, but I, I still feel like I have plenty of time to do things I mean make posts, market, uh, the podcast, the live stream, writing, working with dissertation students, yeah. uh, teaching. You know. I had to do the same thing. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we've been married 23 years. So, you know, when you get through that, you, you get those, the ups and downs and, you know, the times where they're telling you, all right, we've got to be done at a certain amount of time because when you're your own boss, no one tells you to clock in or clock out. So the time just keeps going. And I found myself even yesterday at 6.30, I'm writing a proposal. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's easy to get caught up in that, right? I mean, it's easy to, when you're making money, especially as a consultant, because I've been a consultant um, and I've been on my own, that it's hard to say no when the money is good. And it's hard to say no when you like the client. Um, and it's hard to say no when it's something new and fun and exciting in a site that you've never assisted with before. Yeah. And so, um, you know, again, what helped me start to say no was, was I have enough. Mm-hmm. I had to start telling me I have enough and the extra money is great. And, um, to me, it's more important to be with my children and to, to maintain a relationship with my wife than it is yeah. to have an extra 500 bucks in my pocket. Yeah. And I think, um, it challenged me personally when I, when we had those you know discussions that weren't really fun. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I really had to challenge myself to say, is it time management? Is it escape? you know meaning for me personally am I just trying to escape from something and here I am pouring myself into work is it uh, unbalanced in my life where all of a sudden you know uh, it becomes easier for me to do work than to take the time to meditate or something similar to that or is it just flat out um, thinking of the future you know because as a consultant you've got to pay for everything yourself and if you see in your calendar, all of a sudden things go away in January, February, you're like, all right, I got to do something to get some money coming in for those two months. It's, it's, stre- it's stressful being a consultant, right? Especially if you're on your own. And what I always tell people when they talk about going into consulting or I want to own my own business, I say, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it, it, it was always easier to put my hand out and get a paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. When you're a consultant and you're on your own, you may have a tremendously good month and then the next month make nothing, right? And, you know, hopefully that evens out as you go along, but a lot of consultants don't make it because there is a lot of stress of, I made a lot of money, now there's a couple of down months and what do you do with that time, right? So you start pouring yourself into your work because you have to... Uh, pay the bills. You have to pay your own insurance. You have to pay insurance for the business. You need to make sure that money is coming in for your family, whether it's for school or for food or for shelter. And, um, you know, I give you a lot of credit because um, consulting is not an easy road, especially if you're sole proprietor. Yeah. And we cut back expenses quite a bit to help make that work too. So it's truly, you know, the balance of how can you how can you make this work for the long term if you still know your goals? What's the yeah. end thing for this? And right now we're caregivers and we would not have been able to do this for two years caregiving uh, full time without being flexible. Uh, so right. that's the, the give and take of you know, what we do as consultants is like, yes, I know there's not security where I could put my hand out and get a paycheck because as a consultant, right. you put your hand out and nothing comes back if you, <laughs> if you didn't work. <laughs> so, uh, but the trade-off is when you actually need the time uh, and the flexibility, mobility to do things, you can. And mm-hmm. that's, I, I value that a little bit more. So, yeah. And so you- I've achieved that with my teaching, right? So I teach online and I coach zoom call like we're doing now Mm -hmm. and um i do some consulting but it's not my primary thing that i do 
Um, I have a couple of clients that just keep coming back and I can't say no. Yeah. Um, I write books. I do the podcast, which makes enough money to pay for my equipment so far. <laughs> um, but there is flexibility in everything that I do. And I, I need that. I finally found out in my 50s that I need that. And so I can take my kids to school. That, that's my job in the mornings, take my kids to school yeah. and then I work. Um, and I've also learned to shut off at 4.30, 5 o'clock for the most part if mm -hmm. I'm not doing a live stream or an interview, interview so that I can put what's most important at the four, which is my kids and my wife. Excellent. Uh, two questions. I know you got the time constraint today. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions that I was thinking of and uh, I, I heard you talking about this uh, in, in one of your shows when you're mentioning about being a consultant for a company and you're helping them hire someone in safety mm -hmm. and they couldn't tell you as a trainer what they train on. And uh, you, one of the questions <laughs> you asked them, well, what, what do you train on? And they couldn't answer that, that, as I recall your story right on your podcast episode. So are you still seeing stuff like that where people are faking their resume or they they just don't grasp the basics of safety and health but yet they're looking for a job in safety and health or even as a consultant they say they are and you're like hmm you're a little lacking you can't answer my questions here so so all of the all of the above right this this company was looking for a safety director with 10 years of experience and so i mean everybody has in their mind what a safety director with 10 years of experience should look like right mm -hmm. possibly a certification possibly the cost or the cost m right but you know i was getting resumes of people who just fell into safety and were doing project safety um similar to you know covid came along and safety was one of the first things to go with a lot of companies. And but they but they were hiring safety professionals that were taking temperatures and doing COVID monitoring, but had no background in safety. Huh. These people are now looking for jobs to fill the safety director positions that um, they have no business applying for. Yeah, I mean that—that's my thing, and these resumes were coming through, and you know, I mean, it, it would be like—I would think you would have the same kind of skepticism. The resumes would come through, and I would read them. The company was not savvy enough to read them themselves, but I would read them, and I would say, "I, I got to ask the question because I don't think this guy knows what it, this guy or gal knows what's on their their resume," and it was—it was shocking sometimes that you know maybe they've just taken somebody else's resume and just put it on there yeah or <laughs> you know or they don't really understand that safety is a career choice and a profession um as opposed to a title, better, a title or a better paycheck than what they're making mm -hmm. um you know i mean some of some of the people that were submitting resumes had things on their resumes they couldn't articulate like what they trained on or what they were qualified to train on or um you know they were doing sa safety for somebody but really what they were was a glorified security guard yeah right somebody to drive around and scare the heck out of people that they're driving around 
someone that was an enforcer, you know, where's your hard hat? Where about your safety glasses? And that's what they say. I was in safety. Yeah, I was in safety. Um, and it's really hard to hire, at least on the East Coast here where I am. Um, I've had a lot of reach out saying, can you help me? You know, can you put out the word about this? I want to get a person with five or ten years of experience and they're just... Um, Maybe it's the East Coast, but they're just scarce. Mm -hmm. And um, either they're not looking for work or people are engaged or this is just the area of the country that we're in right now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I, I saw very few resumes come through that um, I would consider five or ten year experience people that could do the job as huh. a safety director. That kind of leads me to um, to the, the other question I was thinking about, because if people are accumulating years but not accumulating knowledge, or they're accumulating years and they're not actually bettering themselves, then that first leads me to what does it say about the acceptance of that kind of stagnant life in our industry that we say, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's that's happened. <laughs> that means that we're not as professional as we say we are. And then the second thing that leads me is it's also I've seen this a lot in in um people that are saying statements and then also uh, adjusting even into beliefs that don't have the proper peer review or even not even if it's peer reviewed but you know that would be great if they even go that far but it seems like border conspiracy theory stuff that is being thrown into the safety well realm and you're like how can these safety professionals get away or even think that uh they could just drop down this this philosophy this thought process without trying to vet it in any way it just drives me nuts and i'm thinking <laughs> someone like you it must drive you more nuts than me because <laughs> it, it drives me crazy okay so so just because you say something it, i just talked about this last night with with michael bowman and uh nate Raymond. Mm -hmm. And um, it drives me crazy when we trot around and, and we, I mean, I, I was probably one of those people at, at, at some point and we say blah, 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 culture or blah, 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 pop or blah, 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 multicultural, all these buzzwords, right? Yeah. And much of it is opinion based, much of it. And if we say it enough, it becomes reality to us, right? And then if we say it even more, it becomes reality to people around us. But there's really no hard research around some of the things that you're reading in safety magazines, mm -hmm. like professional safety, right? It's a summary or a meta-analysis of what's already out there, which doesn't constitute research. It constitutes accumulation of thought. Mm -hmm. It constitutes accumulation of opinion, but not accumulation of knowledge and furthering of knowledge. Does, does that answer your yeah. question? Yeah. Yes, and it drives then, me crazy. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> because and we in the industry, we eat this shit up. People pull down all kinds of bullshit, and we just eat it up, and we think, oh yeah, that's it. Let's go for this. This is the next best thing in safety, and. 
I even see it with with basic OSHA regulations. People argue with me with basic OSHA regulations, and I'm an OSHA reg specialist. I know right. the regs. I've memorized some of these things, and when <laughs> they tell me this, I'm like, okay, show me. And when they don't, like, for instance, you know, ladders, everyone hears three points of contact to go ascend or descend a ladder. Nowhere in the regulations does it ever say three points of contact. Uh, it's not in there. But people it's a are... guideline. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a guideline, but you're not going to be cited for it. No. And truly, it's things like that, but that's on the basic side. But now I'm thinking people with philosophy you know you say hop to somebody and they're truly thinking you know the the word of human organization and how they perform i'm like yeah basic but <laughs> you gotta go through all the different things that build up to it and then even with the behavioral based safety side and people are going around hammering people for doing at-risk behaviors instead of actually looking for safe behaviors and, and coaching them through that uh, mm -hmm. the mindset that i've seen is you they get a little drop of theory and they are uh, meaning the safety professionals out there and all of a sudden it just gets run with as being and then augmented uh, to whatever suits them in their own situation that it becomes so diluted not peer-reviewed uh, no one's doing you know focus groups or anything similar to that perception studies or, yeah, or gap analysis actual research nothing and it's driving me crazy and i keep thinking of you every time i see something like, <laughs> linda's a professional at this she's probably going nuts <laughs> yeah even before i got into the you know the dissertation stuff and the phd and the research um i always have taken things with a grain of salt right and, and maybe that's maybe that's how i was raised was okay what is truth okay there's truth to me and there's truth to you and there's truth to somebody else and the loudest person speaking their truth a lot of times becomes the quote-unquote expert mm -hmm. and i think that's a really dangerous thing when it comes to safety and i'll give you an example so the pandemic right when march came and the pandemic was starting and, and people were starting to talk about COVID. Every single, not every single, most safety consultants were all of all of a sudden COVID experts. Oh, a novel virus. All, all of a sudden they were advertising, I can write your COVID program, I'm a COVID expert, I'm gonna have a webinar on this. And much of it was money driven. Right. And, and I'm I'm sorry. I, I think a lot of times that as a consultant, we say, oh, yeah, I can do that. What is that? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let yeah, me call somebody and I'll find out. <laughs> and I think in that situation, that's a really good example to me of how, how it can become dangerous very quickly when you start relying on people who are not health professionals or they're they're saying they are knowledgeable in something that not even our best scientists in the country are knowledgeable about, right? And so be careful putting yourself out there with these novel ideas or these opinion-based theories on how to deal with people or how to communicate with people or, or et cetera, 
um, because there's not a lot of research behind it. Yeah. All right. Well, it's not just me then. <laughs> it's not just. It's not just you. And and that's like. I mean, I could rant on that. Uh, honestly, Sheldon, for days on end because um, uh, while I have definite opinions on, on safety and different topics um, I also know and have the humility to know that I'm not always right and that there is there is um, you know I can adopt those opinions and not and not put them forth as true yeah true for me yeah, maybe true for a couple other people and I, I know there's scientific method to everything, so I try to be uh, objective, even to the science deniers, if we're talking about COVID, you know, with people that are breathing into a forecast meter and saying, you know, this is what it is with a mask, or you're breathing in carbon dioxide, and now you're going to get, like, come on. <laughs> so yeah. I, in my mind, I start thinking, okay, so what is their motivation? How much of this is really true? And then I try to decide, you know, maybe I need to be challenged. Maybe it's me that, you know, yeah. that that's a truly accepting epidemiologist and not challenging them either. So yeah. I, I get in that mindset as well. So uh, I just, it just really, I don't know if it's just that it's too easy to just build on things. Mm-hmm. And I guess when uh, Safety Differently started, they were building off a hop and uh, but HOP was built off of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, you know, everything has a genesis before it gets to its final uh, stage where we, you know, consume it. Uh, but right. I don't know. I'm I think sorry. we consume no, a lot of theories and not a lot of research. Ooh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And then where do we go to get this research now? Is the other thought is... Where are your think tanks for safety and health? They do it in marketing all the time, but there isn't really any think tanks for safety and health anymore. Well, I, I mean, I think if you're talking about products, right, the think tanks are at, at the, within the um, companies that are putting out some of the best products in safety, right? Yes. Yeah, um, so that's not that's not an issue. What, what it, what's at issue is people doing research in the theory and. So where are the think tanks? I mean, we lost one of the think tanks in the Liberty Mutual um, Safety Center that was out here. That was um, last year, wasn't it? Yeah, in Hopkinton, right? And um, there aren't a lot of programs for safety and health. And you have to understand that, that you know, universities don't push people towards certain types of research. They facilitate what people are interested in. Okay, and so if let's say Hop, right, is there, there is research on Hop, but mm-hmm. let's just let's just say something theory based, right? If there if it's out there and it's been marketed well enough, then why would you do research in it? Because you've been trained to believe that it's true, yeah. right? So if it's true, that's not a viable area to look at. Yeah, that um, challenges the scientific method, just the basis of it, you know, the actual hypothesis, <laughs> you know, challenges that. Yeah, so where, where do you go? I mean, we need to get more people interested in research and more people questioning um, common, uh, commonly perceived opinions or, or perceptions. And 
you know, the way to do it is is on shows like your, yours and mine, you know? Talk about the regulations and, and where do you see that and why are people thinking, you know, in your example, why do they think three points of contact is, is in the regulations? Well, it's not in the regulations, but it may be in one of the one of the cited uh, guidance documents. It is. Um, in, right? Mm-hmm. And so how many people know that? And are all the schools leading people to understand or all the, the programs even or certificate programs, are they leading people to understand the difference between regulation and guidance document and uh, incorporation by reference? Yeah, yeah right? true. Which is what you're talking about. Absolutely. When, when you say three points of contact, right? Absolutely. And can OSHA cite on that? I mean, I think... No, um, yeah, but they... They they used to, but what they'll do is they'll cite on their wording, which is one hand. You must have one hand. Um, right. But it's it's gonna end up being in the in the summary, but they're citing right. off of their standard. Right. Right. Yeah. So hey, I don't know if I answered your question, we but did um, since this is going in my my hundredth. Uh, leading up to my hundredth episode, what kind of advice do you have for me uh, for for beyond a hundred? Beyond a hundred, um, man, you, you want me to be a genie? Yeah. What, what should I? What, what's my my words of wisdom? Let me get some of that executive coaching that you're giving <laughs> out to people. <laughs> do Do you want to expand what you're doing beyond safety consulting? Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of you give some things for free that you think the world needs to know, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not familiar with all of your body of work, but I think what people t- need to know um, that's that's valuable to consultants is uh, how to vet how to vet people, how to vet a consultant, which you probably have been over at some point in your career, and how to how to vet those subcontractors that they need in order to do their job well and so you know i i took a i'm going to give you an example again i took a in my phd program i took a course in environmental impact statements yeah which i'm sorry i'm gonna apologize for this before i say it was useless and the reason i say it was useless is because there are people for that okay and, and so one of the things that you can help people understand is you don't have to do everything yourself. There are people for many things. And consultants serve that purpose. There's a consultant for environmental impact statements, and there's a consultant for wastewater engineering. And there are laboratories that will help you vet data and, and you know, qualify data, etc. And there are um, equipment companies that will help you uh, decide what equipment is best for your purpose. So those are the things that I would focus on because I think um, a lot of consultants that probably follow you mm-hmm. and probably look to you for advice need that type of um, continuing education, continuing knowledge. Excellent. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. 
You're welcome. Thank you for coming back too, for especially so short. I looked it up. I had you back in September, uh, the yeah, September 14th, and you're you know Johnny on the spot when I asked. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. Uh, I appreciate you, Linda, so much. You've been a valued new friend to me. Yeah, similar, same ditto. Ditto. All right. All right. See ya. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Sheldon. Have a good one. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. This episode has been powered by Safety FM.